Man, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Amen. I'm so glad we know the image of the invisible God is Jesus. Amen. I'm so glad to be in God's house. Amen. What a good, uh, good time we're having every time we get together. Amen. Uh, you know, I know this is going to sound braggadocious. It's not. But not every church you go to, you feel what you feel when you come here. Not every church you go to. This is a good church. I mean, there's good people here. There's praying people here. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I, I thank you for those of you who are showing up and praying before Thursday nights, before Sunday. Amen. And praying through the week. Amen. It's, it's much easier to have a move of God when people are prayed through. Amen. When you don't have to come and get saved all over again every Sunday. Amen. Amen. So we are going to continue our series tonight. A lot of exciting things happening. Amen. How many of you, you, you feel like God has done something in your life just in the last week? You feel like God's touched you. Maybe God spoke something to you. Maybe he healed your body. You feel like God's moving. Amen. And uh, there are those of you that you say, well, I still need something from God. Amen. Welcome to the club. All of us, we are still in need of God. I told God today, I said, God, I need you more than I did yesterday. Amen. And I, I'm uh, overwhelmed sometimes with just the cares of life. And so I have to continue to look to him and turn it over to him. And uh, so if you think, man, I'm weird because I'm so desperate in need of Jesus. No, you're not weird. That's just normal. And it's good that you recognize it. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to get into our uh, series again. We're doing lessons from the King and we're learning lessons from the book of Proverbs. Uh, I have been gone the last two weeks, last week because of Youth Congress uh, and the week before. I don't even remember where I was two Thursdays ago. I'm just going to be honest with you. I, right now, it just has completely slipped my mind. Anybody remember where I was? I was at junior camp. That's where I was two weeks ago. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hey, that's what happens. Happens to the best of us. But God is good. Amen. Brother Dummett uh, did a good job uh, two weeks ago, and then Brother Cooper last week, and um, thankful for what God is doing. And we are going to look at Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 1 as we get started here tonight. And uh, it says, Whoso loveth instruction loveth knowledge, but he that hateth reproof is brutish. And I want to just focus on that first part that says, Whoso loveth instruction loveth knowledge. You love to be instructed. You love to be corrected, reproved. It got quiet. It got really quiet. You know, if you love instruction, the Bible says uh, that you love knowledge. It says, but if you, if you don't like reproof, you're brutish. Well, we'll get into that. But first, John 4, 7 says, My beloved friends, let us continue to love each other. Since love comes from God, everyone who loves is born of God and experiences a relationship with God. That's from the message. Uh, so we understand that love is key, and we are going to talk today about loving the things that God loves. Everybody say, love the things that God loves. This is an important lesson from the king. This is an important lesson that we learn from the book of Proverbs. So let's get right into it. 
Relationships mature and develop because of common likes and dislikes. Relationships mature and develop because of common likes and dislikes. Anybody know what that means? That means when you first married your spouse, you thought you had everything in common until the day after the wedding. And then you realize, wait a second, I'm not even sure we're compatible. And you had to work at being compatible, or it didn't work, if we're to be honest. But relationships mature, and they develop because of common likes and dislikes. You know, you, you might meet somebody, and you'd be like, hey, we're friends, and then all of a sudden they do something that really bugs you, right? And then you have to decide, are you worth it? Just being real, right? You have to decide. And, you know, is, is your friendship worth it to me to put up with this? That's how relationships work. They mature and they develop because we either decide we can put up with certain things and we, we are going to, you know, see eye to eye on certain things and we're, we aren't going to see eye to eye on other things. Or uh, we just say, you know what, it's just not worth it. It's the same way in our relationship with God. We grow closer to God as we understand what He likes and what He doesn't like. An awareness of those likes and dislikes should cause us to alter our behavior. Right? You know, it's one thing to say, you know, so-and-so, they want me to be more like, you know, whatever. And I don't want to be like that. But it's another thing when you know that God is like, you know, I just don't like certain of these things that you're doing in your life. And you're like, I really don't care what God thinks. You don't say that. I mean, you don't say that, but that's how you live. Just like, well, you know, there's grace for this. I can. <laughs> well, we should alter our behavior and our lifestyle based on what we know God likes and doesn't like. We begin to change our habits and our actions to conform to behavior that is in harmony with what he likes and he dislikes. Now, some people say, well, I, don't, I thought we weren't into just behavior modification. We're not. But that doesn't mean in your total life transformation that God is giving you that you just say, okay, I know that's what pleases God or that's, that doesn't please God, and you do the opposite. How, how long would that work in a friendship? How long would that work in a, in a marriage or in a relationship? It wouldn't work, would it? Yes, I'm sorry. Those of you that don't have handouts, there are handouts. Just if you don't have one and you want one, raise your hand. They will get one to you. I apologize. I thought everybody that had one. All right, everybody got one? Okay, good. All right. So if we are to be successful in living for God, we must not only hate what he hates, but we must love what he loves. You know, I find a lot of people are like, you know, I got no problem hating what God hates. God hates sin, man. I hate sin. People be blasted on Facebook, right? But loving what God loves, that's an important key element. This can be a struggle for many people. You know, we talk about it here, love is the answer. This is a church where love is the answer. It's not too difficult to recognize the things that God hates and hate those things. It's not too difficult. And it's really not even difficult to recognize the things that God loves. We know God hates murder and God hates, right, lying and all these. It's not hard to recognize and hate those things. 
And it's not even hard to recognize the things that God loves. But what is difficult and the formidable challenge is to love the things when we recognize the things that, God's lo- that, that God loves. I'll give you some for instance here in just a moment. Especially when we realize many of the things that God loves involves people. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For God, uh, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Did you, did you hear that? Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. First John 4, 7 is your fill in the blank. Notice that in the second half of the verse, the writer directly correlates our being born uh, of God to having the ability to love. <clears throat> So conversely, if we don't have the ability to love, we're not born of God, right? Or you could say things that don't come out of love don't come from God. Things that are motivated by other things are not godly. Are you with me so far? All right. So we... When we look at this verse and we understand that if we love, we know God, and then it helps us realize that if we really, uh, we are to really know God, then we must really love the things that God loves. It, it's, hard to, it's hard to say, I'm of God, or I'm, I belong to God, but yet we don't love the things that He loves. Because the scripture says, what? Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. So, he says, let us love one another, for love is of God. Now, it is really impossible, impossible in our uh, realm of imagination to adequately cover everything that God loves in one lesson, because there's a lot of things that God loves, right? But let's focus, we can address some key things that God loves from, I think, if we address these three things tonight, a lot of other things flow from these three things, okay? So, let's cover three things. First of all... Uh, people, the church, and judgment. That's what we're going to try to cover here in the next few minutes. So first of all, God loves people. Everybody say, God loves people. Amen. I tell people when I'm talking about ministry, I say, if you don't love people, you should not be in the ministry. If you're looking for a podium or a platform and you just want to beat people up, just, you know, go into politics or something, you know? Uh, if you love people, you, you can be successful in ministry. No scripture illustrates this point more than John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then you go on to verse 17 and it says, you know, God uh, does not hate people. This is what it says. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. That wasn't the purpose of Jesus coming was, was not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Had God hated people, he would have condemned humanity and offered no means of salvation. But he loves people. And because he loves, it changed, it changed all of uh, history for us. And, and we, we can't just accept the fact that God loves people. And, and I talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, in Louisville at our service, I said, God loves 
all people. It's hard for me to fathom that he loves the terrorists. And he loves the, the school shooters. I, I have trouble with that. I, I, I'm, you know, honestly, and some of you are like, I don't, I don't care. I don't have to love those people. Yeah, actually, the Bible says we do. Well, that's nice. That's all good for them. But, you know, I just don't know. I, I can't. Well, then we've got to become more like God. God has never been, nor will he ever be subject to the biases and prejudices that people have towards one towards another. I was taught, we were talking about this over the last few weeks and how people can't get along because of the color of their skin or because of uh, political divides or because of different things that are, have gone on and, and how just crazy this must seem to God. God is not, nor will he ever be, subject to the biases and prejudices that people have one towards another. Acts 10.34, then Peter opened his mouth and said, of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. I mean, this is one of the key people in the Bible, one of the key people, especially in the New Testament, and God had to speak to him plainly three times to get him over some prejudice and some bias that he had in his life. We have traveled and I have seen in many different countries racism. Uh, you have seen it maybe not just here, but you have seen it in other places as well. Racism that uh, just tears, tears people apart. And there's no real reason for it. There, there, I mean, uh, it, it, a lot of times it goes back to how someone was raised or something that was passed on to them. It really has nothing to do with the quality of person. You, you can't look at somebody and because they're purple or they're green or they're blue, you can't, you can't say, well, you're just not a good person. There's no way. I know I'm using, you know, fictional colors here for people but get, you know you you get the point you can't just look at somebody and say well it's your skin color determines something no and so if we are really to be the church that God wants us to be you know we don't have a church of black folk and we don't have a church of white folk it's not a black church or a white church or a latino church or an asian church it's the church. Amen. It's the church. It's the one that he purchased with his own blood. So if we are to love the things that God loves, then we must develop a love for everybody equally. Man, that's why I love this church. That's why I love this church. There's some churches I feel uncomfortable in because there's racism. And it's not, well, I'm just, can I just be plain? It's just us, right? And, and everybody watching online. Some people want to describe one race or another as being more, you know, like white supremacy is a big thing right now. Everybody's talking about white supremacy. I'm going to just tell you this right now, okay? If they are a white supremacist and they are a racist, they are wrong. And if they, if, if they don't repent, they're going to go to hell for that sin of racism. Amen? But I'm going to flip the scale now, too, because black people have racism, too. 
They call it reverse racism, whatever you want to call it. But there's racism among black people. Some black people are racist toward white people. Some black people are racist toward Asian or Mexican. Or There's a lot of, sometimes even just toward other black people. I'm an equal opportunity offender. I will tell you like it is tonight. I hate racism. I think it's stupid. I, I think it's the most idiotic thing. And it's, it's just... It's satanic. It's demonic. All it does is divide. Amen. I, I've got people, you know, sometimes people don't understand this, but I, I am constantly with people of all different races, and I love it. And it doesn't bother me one bit. And I would not want to trade it for the world. I'm telling you. I've had, I've had people say, hey, I'll, do you like this church over here? You want to come to this church? I said, look, there's only a few churches that I want to be at, and they got to be racially diverse. It has to be a multicultural church. I can't go to a church that, that has a, a mindset, amen, that that's, it's, it's just, just us. It's just us. No, because that's not how, you know, let, let me just say it. Civil wars, world wars, family disputes, riots, rebellions, they have all occurred because of one people's ex- unacceptance of somebody else. And they use that as the reason uh, why they can't get along or why they can't can can I just say it, and this is your fill-in-the-blank, Calvary is cross-cultural. It's multinational. It's non-geographical and multilinguistic for a reason. It's so that everybody can be saved. Everybody can have grace and mercy in their life. Amen. And at the foot of the cross, there's nothing that separates one individual from another individual. Everybody's equal at the foot of the cross. It's common ground, and the sacrifice that occurred there allows His blood to flow into every believer, thus creating a new race of people. We call them the redeemed. We're not black or white or Asian or Hispanic. We are the redeemed. When we stand before God, there's going to be all cultures and nations and ethnicities and tongues of people, and they will be the redeemed. It's not going to be the Hispanic redeemed in the, hello, I'm Hispanic American and I'm Asian American. And No, when we get to heaven, we're standing before God, we're just the redeemed. We don't, come on, we left our old culture behind. We took on the new man, amen, and Jesus Christ made us into his image. I got to move on because we'll be here all night if I stay on that. That's one of my pet peeves, and I've probably since the, since the day I got here. And God knows. God knows what we needed, right? God knows what we needed. All right. God loves the sinner. God loves the sinner. The old saying is definitely true. God loves the sinner, but he hates their sin. It's true. Never forget that God has the ability to differentiate between a person and their sin. You and I, we're not so good. God is good at this. He's really good. But we have, we have a struggle here. Romans 5, 6. That's your fill in the blank. Romans 5, 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. I don't know if that, know if that really rings through. We read that and sometimes we just kind of go, go on. I want you to just read that again slowly and think about it. When we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
He didn't die for the saved good me. He didn't, he didn't die for the holy me, the righteous me, the me that treats everybody with respect and honor. He died for the ungodly. He died for the me that was not worthy. The me that didn't deserve. I mean, I deserved hell. I deserved death. That's, that's who he died for. He loves the sinner in spite of their sin. He loves them in spite of their sin. I, I think this is hard for some of us, especially us saved people. Air quotes. Saved people. Because I don't know, sometimes I'm a little nervous. For us saved people, we have trouble with this next one. He loves them while they live in sin. We all sit in church and go, yes, Jesus loves me. And we're thinking, yes, because I'm so good and I'm so clean and I put on my nice clothes today. and I'm trying to do what's right. Yes, Jesus loves me. No, that person out there that's living in sin right now, he loves them too. Even when they're choosing to do what's wrong, even when they're choosing to do things that hurt him and that, that, that make him sad and he sees the damage that they're doing, he loves them while they live in sin. But at no time does he ever love or condone their sin. God doesn't love or condone their sin. You and I, as his children, must pray that we develop the same ability, that we don't love or condone sin, but that at the same time we learn to love the sinner while they're in their sin. Amen? We, we've got to understand that. We've got to get that. Jesus loves them in spite of their sin, even while they're living in sin. And he doesn't love or condone their sin, but he loves them just the same. When we love the sinner the way that God does, their sin will not keep us from reaching out to them. But will draw us to them. Amen? I know some people are like, I've seen some people come into the church, and, and, and don't, don't get me wrong, when you come to the church and you're trying to live for God, you do, there does need to be some separation because you're still trying to break away from the old life, okay? But I'm not trying to negate that, but I do think that there are some people that they come in and get saved, and then all of a sudden they're like, you know what, I can't, I, I can't even stand to be around that person anymore, they're just, ugh. Well, yeah, and so were you. We were all, ugh. We've got we to gotta pray for those people. We've got to love those people. We, we don't just write them off just because, you know, hey, they, they're still in sin. They may be, you know, what happens a lot of times is God wants to use you to bring in those people that are close to you. And, and you come in, and they are like, you know, you think you're better than us now. And you, I know some of you have been through this, but you think you're better than us now, and you don't have time for us anymore. And, you know, you're like, and you're thinking in your mind, you're like, you know, there's a little bit of truth to that because I, I can't be around you because I don't want to be around that old lifestyle anymore. I don't want that pulling me back. And there's, that's some truth, okay? But at the same time, we stop praying for them. We stop really caring about them, and we just try to put as much distance between them and 
and us as we can. Instead of praying for them and fasting for them and saying, God, uh, I know I can't be around them right now because I, I, don't want to be, I don't want to go back to that lifestyle that I was in. And they're still in that lifestyle. They're trying to pull me back. So, God, I know I can't be around them, but, God, would you give me an opportunity to speak to them? Would you uh, give me a, a way that I can show your love to them? Would you reach out to them and help them to see that what's happening to me can happen to them? And that's what the love of God should do in us. Is It doesn't make us better than anybody. It just makes us care about people more. It should make us love people more. Amen? And you say, well, how has this, you know, this happened? Well, Jesus never asked a person to be righteous before he would love them or help them. He didn't, he didn't say, okay, now, if you'll just do A, B, and C, then we can talk. No, we find him transforming the woman at the well while she's still living in adultery. Right? He's like, you've had five husbands. The one that you're with now, you're just shacking up with. She's like. <laughs> he reached out to lepers, and they were really kind of the outcast of their, their society. He heals the, women, the woman with the issue of blood, even though by everybody else, she would have been considered unclean ceremonially. They shouldn't have had anything to do with her. He conversed with the man that was possessed of legions of devils. I'm going to be honest with you. A lot of times in my mind, I see these people and I want to walk the other way. I know there's something wrong with that guy. I am not. No, not today, devil. Right? I don't have time for that, you know, and I'm thinking, man, I don't have, and, and you know, it's not, sometimes it's, we're not even doing it to be mean, we're just like, you know, wow, they're really far gone, they're so far gone, why, why did Jesus do this, because he loved people, all people, regardless of the condition of their spiritual man, he loved them, and sometimes we have trouble loving people if they don't smell good. Or if they don't treat us right. I'll tell you the one that's hard for me is when they don't treat my family right. Woo! You talk about, you know, rubbing somebody the wrong way, that's, that'll get you going. Who are we to determine who deserves and who doesn't deserve God? After he went to Calvary and shed his blood and took all, we have no right to say this person does and this person doesn't deserve God. When we're filled with the Spirit, we should love as strongly and as indiscriminately as He did. As strongly and as indiscriminately as Jesus did. We should greet the sinner with open arms. Some of you all are like Googling indiscriminately right now. <laughs> I-N-D-I-S-C-R-I-M-I-N-A-T-E-L-Y. Indiscriminately. <laughs> That's funny. It's harder to do without spell check, I'm just saying. We should greet sinners with open arms. There shouldn't be anybody that you can't love with Jesus' help. They ought to feel mercy, compassion, and acceptance anytime that they come into the house of God. There shouldn't be a place where they come and they're like, I just don't feel very welcome there. Amen? I hesitate to even say this, but I've been to some churches, and I look pretty saved, okay? I do. 
I mean, I look pretty safe. Like, I'm, I know, I mean, not tonight, right? But most times when I go to church, I, I at least kind of look saved. And I've been to some churches and I didn't feel welcome. And I'm thinking, man, if I didn't feel welcome, I wonder what somebody who doesn't look saved feels. It's kind of scary, right? We must extend to them the same unfettered love that was shown to us when we were yet sinners. Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we understand God loves people, right? You know who else God loves? God loves the church. God loves the church. It's interesting to know that the premier passage concerning God's feelings for the church, he uses the marriage relationship as a type of his relationship with the church. You read that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 32. Ephesians 5, 22 through 32. And this speaks of the wife submitting to the husband and to the husband honoring the wife. So in this passage of Scripture, we find a description of the incredible love that God had for the church or God has for the church. So let me just say it and try to break it down into some sections here so we can get it. First of all, God loves the people in the church. He loves the people in the church. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, which we just referenced, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, I understand uh, how is he going to present. He's not going to present a building to himself. So we understand that God loves the people, the church. Uh, and how else except that he loved the church supremely would he give himself willingly? He loved the church. The church was his plan. The church was his his uh, brainchild, that this is how he was going to bring humanity back to him. And I get so frustrated whenever I see pastors of these churches and places standing up and saying, you know, we need the government to help us. No, we don't need the government to help us. We need God to help us. Amen. We, we don't need pastors standing up saying, there's no hope. Quit acting like this and quit. Do no, we need to understand God's the only one that can help us. If God doesn't help us, there's going to be no help. People are going to keep doing very stupid things. They're going to keep doing bad things and evil things and making the wrong choices. But the church should start shining. Amen? The church should be loving. The church should be giving and reaching for people. And so he loves the church so supremely that he gives himself willingly. What other motivation but love could there be for the desire to have a glorious church without holy, without blemish, without spot or wrinkle. That is his purpose. That was his plan. It was love. I mean, in order to be pleasing to God, if we really are honest, we've got to love the people of the church. I've heard some people say, well, I love God. I just can't stand the church. Really? Wow. Be like, you know, me saying to my wife, well, honey, you know, you're beautiful, but I can't stand your body. How, how far would I get on that? 
That'd be bad. Yeah, y'all make sure they do an autopsy. That's all I'm saying. You can't, I mean, you cannot separate God and his church. You can't, oh, I love Jesus, but I just can't stand the church. Are there people in the church or people that historically have done bad things and represented the church in bad ways? Yes. Yes. But that doesn't mean that the church is bad. That doesn't mean that the people of the church are bad. That means that there are people that make bad choices. And so when we understand, we've got to, we, we've got to look at this and we've got to say, hey, wait a second, what is it that I'm missing because I'm having trouble loving this person? I'm having trouble loving that person. Comes time for communion, and I've got to go repent 50 people before I can take communion. <laughs> Yikes, right? That's a bad place to be. When you know that there's so much between you and other people, you've got to love the people of the church like God loves the people of the church. When the Lord was instructing the disciples about evangelism, He informed them, one of the strongest indications of discipleship, and this is what he said, John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So, and we're saying we love Jesus, but I can't stand that person that I go to church with. Or we gossip about them, we're talking about them, or this person that I'm going to church, they made me so mad, blah, 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 blah. Our coworkers are like, don't invite me, I don't want to go. Notice he did not say that people would know because of the type of building they assembled in. He didn't say that they would know because there was a sign over the door that said apostolic, Pentecostal. Or what they look like. Jesus didn't say, it's going to be your apostolic distinctives that separate you, and that's how people are going to know that you're my disciples. Nope. It was all in whether or not they loved and expressed love one for another. Even if they looked right, even if they had the right sign on the door, even if their church was named the right thing, if they didn't love one another, people wouldn't know. Well, that's food for thought. The, the epistle writers, for those of you that are not familiar, epistle is a letter. So the letters that were written in the New Testament, epistles, E-P-I-S-T-L-E, epistle writers, continued with the same teaching, Romans 13, 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. That's, he says, look, when you do that, you have fulfilled the law. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, but as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you. It's up on the screen for those of you that are wondering. For ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. That means whenever you're not in a good relationship with somebody, God is trying to teach you how to love them. He wants you to work through that. 1 Peter 1.22, seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Fervently. 
That's, that's a pretty strong word, fervently. With a pure heart. It's not just half-hearted, you're doing it with your whole heart and you're doing it passionately. 1 John 4, 11 and 12, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. think it's pretty much wrapped up there. So this love for the brethren should also be without bias or prejudice. This love for the brethren should be without bias or prejudice. We're not given liberty by God to uh, selectively love folks in the church. Well, I love just the German people. (laughs) Only the Germans. That's the only ones I love. I love all my people in the church, just my group of people that I get along with. No. No. If anybody has the right, God does. If anybody could separate and say, well, these people don't deserve those people. No. He loves the whole church. More churches are weak and anemic and destroyed because of people not loving people than any other reason. You know, I have figured something out. I figured out that if we love one another and we stick together, we can accomplish anything. But if we don't love each other, we can have things going so well. And if we don't love each other, guess what? It's going to tear a church apart. If the disciples in their day would be known by their love one for another, we should also be known by our love for each other. A mature Christian possesses a nature of love towards everyone. A nature of love. This is developed through the understanding that if we are to love one another, we must know one another. Like, that's not true, Pastor, because when I get to know them, then I really don't like them. Why Why is that? Why is it that we have trouble liking people once we really get to know them? Some people say, oh, they seem really nice. They seem really normal. And, you know, and you're like, well, just wait, you know, just wait. We have trouble because uh, we do not love perfectly. And I think we always struggle. But I, I honestly believe this. This is, this is just me. I, maybe I'm wrong. Not it really in the notes. I'm just kind of adding this to so that you can get it. But I really believe that once I have reached a level of love, and I'm almost perfect, God sends somebody else. He sends somebody else. And then I have, to, I have to start learning all over again. I'm like, I thought I had this figured out. Or, better yet, now let's just be honest, we're human. There are chemical things that go on in our body. Sometimes we'll think everything's good, and then somebody changes. And we're like, where did that come from? You know, how, how is this happening? And I don't even know you anymore. It's really quiet. We must be tapping into something there. Why does God do this? Why, why does he allow this? Because we need to be made perfect in love. We need to grow in our capacity to love. All too often, uh, you know, we, we find that we've got people that don't know how to have good friends Let me just say it like this. Your your closest friend should be in the church. 
Your closest friends should be in the church. Um, your best fellowship ought to be with church folks. And your strongest defenses ought to be for and by those in the church. Too many times we have a church full of acquaintances and not friends. That's why we are trying with everything we can. Have small groups, have community. We're pursuing community. We're trying to be together, do life together. Because we need that connection. Too many times people have acquaintances in church and friends out in the world. And those friends are more influential than the acquaintances that they have at church. We love God more as we know more about Him. You will love the people in the church the more you know about them. One of the great things that you can do is, uh, they said it this past Sunday, take a trip with people in the church. You will get to know people better. Now, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to try to move quick here, but God also loves the physical church. Okay, the, the building is what we're talking about. God loves the physical church. I know that people are the living vibrant part of the church, but God also loves the facilities and the practices of the church. Let me see if I can kind of explain that a little bit. The first, uh, this really becomes evident to us in the, con- in the construction when the Old Testament tabernacle was built. We kind of see in the Old Testament tabernacle kind of like a pattern for the church. One of the finest building materials uh, only the finest that, that they had could be used. Everything was to be lovingly crafted according to God's specific design. It was to be meticulously maintained. It was a holy place where holy actions took place. That's why I like it when people reverence the house of God and the things of God. Now, you know, we have people who take this church and this building seriously. Uh, Brother Dummett mentioned it Sunday. That's why when you saw the the, you know, the post going down and you saw all the stuff from the ceiling that had just been dumped down onto the floor, you know, just a few months ago uh, before we got everything fixed. Uh, it, it was disconcerting to those of us who really love the church and we, we are passionate about meeting together in this building. And so uh, I will just say this, uh, had the place not been acceptable in God's eyes, in the tabernacle, had the place not been acceptable in God's eyes, the sacrifices and the worship offered there would not have been acceptable either. Now, some people say, well, you might be making a little bit too much out of the building. It doesn't necessarily have to be this building, but for now, this is the building we're meeting in, okay? Uh, The Old Testament tabernacle is in some ways the pattern of the New Testament church. God is still concerned with the facility where we worship when worship takes place. He doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it could be a building, it could just be a, it could be a pole barn, it could be somebody's house, it, it, that doesn't matter, but the, the whole part of it is that we take reverence, or we reverence, and we have respect, and we love that, that place, and that, that uh, you know, not, not that we make a, a sacred cow out of it, not that we make it an idol, that it can never be changed, and nothing can ever uh, be different, but, but just that we respect that this is the place where we come and worship together. You know, that's why we don't, well, I'm going to just keep moving on. We should have incredible respect and reverence for the house of God. No, I know it's not surrounded by animal skins. The furniture is not overlaid with gold. Neither is there incense, candles, or showbread. But it's still the place where the Shekinah glory of God visits His people. Still a place of death and atonement. 
Some of you don't like, you don't, you don't like those words, but it is. It's still a place of death and atonement. It's where our flesh comes to die. It's still the place where God chooses to gather His people for the purpose of intercession. When we pray together and we pray for each other and we're praying for those who are lost and those uh, who are hurting. It's still the place where ministry happens. Amen. We, one of the reasons why we fix this building is we need a place where ministry can happen. We need a place where people can worship together. Our behavior and attitude towards the house of God ought to be motivated out of love. It ought to be motivated out of love. Not, oh, you know, we can't, can't do anything. No, it's got to be motivated out of love. Love demands that we are at our best in the house of God. Love demands that we keep the house of God well maintained. And I am so very thankful. Every time somebody comes to this church, uh, one of the most common comments that I hear is how clean this place is. And I, I try to tell them, you, you don't understand, we've got good people at this church. We don't, we don't pay people to clean this church. People come and it's their sacrifice of love and they keep this church clean. They keep it looking good. I, I, I don't have time, I couldn't do it. And so uh, we keep it well maintained and love demands that we respect the facility by not abusing the facility. That's why it's good to teach your kids not to be bouncing off the wall. Not to be tearing stuff up. Don't, don't you know, you see little ones up here, kind of guide them away. The, the instruments and all the stuff that we have. I mean, this church bought it. This church paid for it. And we want to see it continue to be good. So make sure that we're not abusing it. The sanctuary, especially, ought to be treated with reverence. There's a lot of stuff that people get away with that, I'm telling you, I just, growing up, I didn't get away with it. Like some of the stuff I see people doing nowadays, I'm not talking about just kids, I'm talking about adults too, man. My mom would have had my ear, like twisting it. Oh, not sweet sister Dummett. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It was painful. I can still feel it sometimes. Got to have some respect. All right, let me get to the last one. God loves righteous judgment. God loves righteous judgment. While God is a God of love, we must never forget that He is a God of judgment. Well, I don't like that part of it. Well, it's okay. Let's, let's see if we can move forward and see if you can see what, what this is talking about. Indeed, for God to be a loving God... He must be a righteous judge. Those two are not separate. If he's going to be a righteous judge, he is also a loving God. No parent can hope to raise a child with love alone. Oh, I love them. I'm just loving them. <laughs> there must be firm yet fair discipline. Hebrews 12, 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he... Yeah, he, he, he chastises them, and he scourges every son whom he receiveth. We don't like that. Without love and judgment working together, we will never be acceptable to God. Psalm 37, 28, For the Lord loveth judgment, and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The Lord loveth judgment, and he does not forsake his saints. 
as difficult as it may be to understand that we must, we must learn to love the judgment of God. Now, I know some of you are like, I, I, you know, I love the love of God. I love how God loves people. I, I just don't see how, how a, a, a loving God, I had somebody say it to me, I don't understand how a loving God could ever judge like that. Judgment, when it first appears, pierces our heart and spirit. We resist the attention that God is giving us because it is pointing out an error or weakness in our life, and nobody likes that. But we should be thankful that God loves us enough to judge and to correct us. You know... Proverbs 13.24 says this. It's, I'm going to read you the message version. This is so that, you, you know, this is the King James says, He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Now let me just read to you what the message says. It says, A refusal to correct is a refusal to love. Love your children by disciplining them. My parents love me a lot. <laughs> they love me so much. I can't even begin to tell you. People say to the moon and back. That's how I felt like I was being launched there sometimes. <laughs> they love me. I'm telling you. I, I, was, I was talking to Gavin the other day, and we were talking about this, and I told him, I said, Gavin, I was, I was a pretty bad kid. I said I did a lot of stupid stuff, and I was kind of rebellious at times. And I, so we were just—I was just kind of talking to him. And, and uh, I said I got a lot of, a lot of spankings. I really did. And he goes, "How many spankings do you think you got?" I said, "Hmm, wow. How many days are there in a year?" Started probably around the age of four. Went at least to about uh, at least twelve. So, and I was trying to count up. I'm like. I know, I know, I, I know this is probably going to be sounding kind of crazy, but it, it's safe to say I got at least 2,000 spankings, at least. That's how much my parents love me. Some of you are like, oh, oh. Look, I'm going to just say this. There are some kids, there are some kids, you can discipline them without spanking them. But I don't think there's, there's any kids that never need to be spanked. Else why would the scripture say? <laughs> well, <laughs> you, don't, you don't spank them, you don't like them. That's what it says. Uh, don't get mad at me. Get mad at the Bible. A refusal to correct is a refusal to love. Uh, well, let's keep moving. With the righteous, without the righteous judgment of God, we will die lost. If God doesn't show judgment in your life, you will die lost. Being born again and serving God for years will not exempt you from doing wrong. It will not. And when you do wrong, you still need God to judge you and to correct you. David found this to be true when he, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. In the process of God restoring him, David stopped one step short of becoming reprobate. 
Reprobate means literally and morally worthless, cast away, rejected. Worthless, cast away, rejected. There's four steps in becoming reprobate, and David went through four of them before he allowed the judgment of God to actually work in him. There these four steps. The fifth one is being reprobate, and David went through all four. Let me show them to you. First of all is conviction. Conviction. This is that feeling that occurs in the heart that immediately lets us know that what we are about to do or what we are doing is wrong. Something's not right about this. You know something's not right. You feel it. David felt this when he walked on the rooftop and he looked where he shouldn't have looked. He knew it wasn't right, but he looked anyways. And in so doing, he overrode the conviction that he felt. If you feel conviction and you know God is, uh, he is doing something and God is speaking to you and he is, he is trying to, to, to help you along and uh, make sure that you understand something is wrong, when you feel that conviction in your heart, you respond to it. Stop doing it, whatever it is. If it's something, a habit that you've gotten into, break the habit as fast as you can. If it's something that you are, uh, you know, you've walked into and you're like, oh my goodness, I shouldn't be here, walk out. If it's a relationship that you're in and God's dealing with you and you know this is not right, I should not be with this person, get out. Number two, secondly, there is chastisement. Chastisement. Generally, chastisement comes from the Word of God, whether by reading, by preaching, or teaching. When we hear the Word of God and we know, oh, the Word of God has hit it right on the head, I know I'm not where I need to be. I, I, I told Gavin the other day when I was talking to him about this, and we, I was telling him about my experience as a 16-year-old at church camp and how Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it seemed like the preacher was preaching right at me. He, it seemed like he used the same text every night. I don't know if he did or not. I'd love to go back and find out. But he was preaching right at me. And what was coming from the Word of God was chastising me. I knew it, and I needed to respond. And David knew that the law stated that adultery was a sin, but he was going to do it anyways. He was aware that such a thing was displeasing to God, yet he chose to override chastisement in his life. Not only did he override the conviction that he felt, but now he knew this is not right and the Word of God says it's not right and the law says it's not right and I, I just know morally this is not right and he still did it anyways. Thirdly, there is open rebuke. There's open rebuke. When an individual rejects conviction and chastisement, God will send an open rebuke. This occurred when David was visited by the prophet Nathan, he points his finger at it and, he's, and, and he tells the parable. And David says, who is it? I'm, we're going to find this and, and you know, I'm going to make this right. And, and Nathan points his finger and he says, you're the man. In our lives, many times God will also point at us and say, you are the man. This is on you. You know that this is not right. When this occurs, we need to be aware. God is trying to save us. He's not trying to be mean. He's not hateful or rude. He's not being a bully. This is his love, and he's trying to tell you, hey, stop. There's a cliff up ahead. There's a bridge out. Stop. I wish, I could, I, I wish you could understand 
what God is saying to those that are uh, not living right and the conviction has not worked. They overrode conviction. They've been chastised and, and that doesn't work. And so God's getting to the place where there's going to be open rebuke in their life. And when this occurs, God is trying to save you. Surprisingly enough, although David was sorry, he did not totally allow open rebuke to alter his thinking. I find so many people in the category of David. They've been warned. They've been told. They know better. And fourthly, there's judgment. There's judgment. So God sends judgment This is the price to be paid for sin. Nathan looked at David and he declared, the baby will die. Sin always brings judgment. The product of David's sin would lose its life. And still, David continues on this journey towards being a reprobate. How? How could David do this? How? You might ask, how would, why would David not stop? Because he did not accept the judgment of God. For seven days, David prayed and he fasted that God would spare the baby. It's incredible, right? I mean, think about it. It's incredible. The, the anointed of God, God's anointed is trying to bargain his way out of the judgment of God in his life. David was failing to realize two things. The first thing, and you need to understand, you need to hear me right now. God loved him too much not to judge him. God loves you too much not to judge you. God loves you too much than to let it go unpunished. Number two, this is what David didn't realize. If the baby had lived, it would have been a continual reminder of the sin David had committed. The last step is reprobation. Finally, reprobation. Thank God that David stopped before a reprobate mind would overtake him. When they knocked on the door and they told him that the baby had died, then David came to himself. He arose and he washed his head. This is a symbolizing a fresh start. He could have chosen to be bitter because of the judgment of God, but David chose to become better. It was after this that David wrote the 57th Psalm, a psalm of contrition and thankfulness for the judgment of God. If you ever find yourself being judged by God, just remember this. Number one, God loves you too much not to judge you. God loves you too much. There were times that I wish my parents loved me a little less. Right? Everybody else gets away with it. Everybody else is allowed to do this. I don't understand why I'm the one. I'm the only one getting a spanking here. I'm the only one being grounded. I'm the only one losing my privileges. You know, my friends over here, anybody know what I'm talking about? My friends over there, they get to do all this stuff. In fact, their parents encourage them. Well, they're not saved today. So I guess, I guess this is okay. I guess loving me enough to, to judge me and to punish me, I guess that's, that's okay, God, I'll, I'll take it. Number two, 
This is what you need to remember if you're being judged by God. You have already overridden conviction, chastisement, and open rebuke. You've already overridden it. The next step is the fatal one. You are only one step away from becoming reprobate. There are those of you that are here tonight, and God has been trying to get through to you. Maybe you're in that, that stage. You're in the stage of, of conviction, and you know something's not right. God's dealt with you, and you, you just kind of override it. You do what you want to do anyways. And then there's those of you that you are in the chastisement stage, and you know through the preaching and the teaching and the things that are being said and done around you, and even your own reading of the Word of God, you're not writing. God's dealing with you, and you're choosing to continue on. And then there's open rebuke, and maybe you've already been open, re, openly rebuked, or maybe just, you know, somehow, some way, somebody's calling you out, and you're like, wait, wait, wait. You need, to, you need to recognize tonight. You need to recognize this is the love of God. This is the love of God. You know what God loves? He loves righteous judgment. You know why we should love righteous judgment? Because it keeps us from going to hell. As we stated already tonight, it would be impossible to adequately cover everything that God loves in one lesson. It would be even more impossible to think that we could adequately ever love everything that God loves. It will take a lifetime of knowing God, knowing His ways, to understand all that God loves. So I think our best bet is to make our life's endeavor to love Jesus Christ like never before. To, to start fashioning our lives and, and trying to do everything that we can to understand Him and His ways. And, and sometimes, you know, uh, there were things in my life, and I'm just, gonna, I'm, I'm just being real and I'm, I'm close and I know you're ready to go. But let me just be real. There were some things in my life that at the time I did not understand why my parents made the, such a big deal out of it. I didn't understand it. With my, with my limited thinking, I could not understand why they would. And I thought there were times, and, and you know, my dad will tell you this. My mom will probably tell you too. There were times I thought I knew better than them. You know? It's kind of like the... You know, the, the, the four-year-old that's talking to the astronaut and telling him why the rocket can't take off. That rocket can't take off. It's too big. The wings aren't even right. It looks weird. It's not going to take off. That's what I sounded like, I'm sure, to, some, to my parents sometimes. And that's how we sound to God sometimes. God, I don't understand. You, you, don't, you don't have a clue about my life. You don't know. It, it's, it's that ludicrous that we would tell God, God, you don't get me. He's like, I know what's best for you. I know what's best. Better yet, I've given you instruction. Love the things that I love. Hate the things that I hate. Amen? It's, sin is still sin. We're not going to get to heaven with adultery and fornication, lying, cheating, stealing. We're not going to get to heaven with those things. We're not going to get to heaven with racism. I'm closing. As we endeavor to love Jesus Christ like never before, we will naturally start loving the things that he loves. You know what I have found? My wife and I have a lot in common. We've got a lot in common. Um, we have grown to have a lot more in common. As we love Jesus, our love for people 
both saints and sinners, will grow. Our love for the church will grow. Our love for righteousness and righteous judgment will grow. But if we don't love Jesus and we don't yield ourselves to him, we're going we're gonna to continually be fighting that war that we were talking about on Sunday. There's going to be that struggle. Why don't we just give it all to him? Why don't we just love him more than anything else? We say we're the church where love is the answer. Let's just respond to his love by loving him in return. Can we stand? Amen. I pick on my, my parents a little bit, my wife, every once in a while, my kids. But I will say this, and I will say this publicly. I want to thank my parents for loving me. Amen. They love me enough to whoop me. They love me enough to ground me. They love me enough to talk with me. They love me enough to pray for me. Amen. And uh, I, I know that some of you, um, you're not going to recognize this, but I thank God for some people in my life that whenever I was spiritually not where I should be, I thank God that they love me. I thank God that they say, you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong, there's a bridge out up ahead. You're going, you're, you're going to hit the bottom. Stop. If you've got people like that in your life, if there are people like that in this room with you right now, you ought to go up to them right after this and hug their neck and say, man, I love you. I'm so thankful for you. I can't make it without you. Why? Because we need that kind of love. Amen? Amen? Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word today, and I thank you, God, that we can love the things that you love, and we have learned, God, that you love people, you love the church, and you love righteous judgment. I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts and minister to us. Help us, Lord, to grow in our love, and God, that we would give you all the glory and all the praise with the things that you're doing in our life through your love, and God, we thank you for what you're going to do as we move closer to you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you go, let me make just a couple quick announcements. First of all, uh, 